1: Today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 11. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands, my decrees, and my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, because he was afraid to say, She is my wife. He thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered him, Because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people. Anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. The word of God.
2: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for waking them up. My name is Bruce O'Neill, and I'm one of the pastors here. And Pastor Michael is away, so I get the opportunity uh, to bring the message this morning. I love movies. I particularly like superhero movies. Um, I loved The Last Batman. I've loved almost all of the Batmans, but probably the earlier ones, depending on who gets to be Batman. And so, they've gone and I got a Brit to play Batman. I don't know if it makes him more sophisticated or what, but it was a good movie. I think there is a formula that Hollywood uses. Uh, in the whole idea of sequels, they operate under this theory that if you get the same characters, the same plot, the same feeling, it will equal a blockbuster. That's kind of how it works, and in most cases, It does work, but we have seen good ones, and we've seen bad ones. Some of the uh, good ones was Star Wars, and Star Trek, and The Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Shrek, for those who like Shrek, and The Godfather 2. But we have seen some horrible bad ones too. Rocky 4 and (laughs) 5, Frozen 2, Rambo 2, and 3. Taken to, I don't know why they thought that was a good idea. Friday the 13th or pick your own Friday movie. Jaws 2 and 3 and Caddyshack 2. You can't top one, so why try? In a way, Genesis chapter 26 is a sequel to Genesis 20. They're very similar. Uh, They're parallel stories between a father and a son, Abraham and a son. Isaac both had wives who struggled with infertility. Uh, Both faced a famine in their lifetime. Um, uh, Both faced the same temptation to abandon God under suffering. Both lied to save their own skin. Both uh, deceptions were discovered by the ruler. It reminds me a little bit of Harry Chapin's song, if you remember, and the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue, blue and the man in the moon. If you remember how that ends, it ends like this. As I hung up the phone, it occurred to me he had grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. Now, I understand that older references lose their ability on newer viewers. So, let me give you a modern version. John Meyer, he has a song that says, Fathers, be good to your daughters. Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers, so mothers be good to your daughters too. To quote the great philosopher from New York City, Yogi Bear. It's like deja vu all over again. This is the only chapter in the entire Bible given to Isaac. You think of all the great fathers of the faith, Isaac gets one chapter, and it's a colossal failure on his part. Allow me to remind you of the story. The, uh, the opening verse says there's a famine in the land. Famines are uh, kind of common in the Middle East. This is not the same one from chapter 20. It seems that every so often a family will, a, a famine will sweep the land. Isaac and Rebekah tried to flee the famine to uh, a land of plenty, which was Egypt in verse 2, and and God stops him and restates a promise that he had given to his father Abraham in verses 3 and 4. Isaac tells the men of Gerar, the place where they are, that Rebekah is his sister, but we know Rebekah is his wife. Abimelech discovers the lie by observing how Isaac was treating Rebekah. The word that is there in English is the word caress that, again, just know that that's an English euphemism, but no matter what really was going on, it's not something brothers and sisters do together. And Abimelech, his name is the same name that caught Abraham in his lie, but it's a different guy. There's about 75 years between these two guys, and and Abimelech is like the term Pharaoh. It's not a person's name. It's a position of power. And so, he discovers. I want you to know one interesting feature of this text. It's called a chronological displacement. That means that the story is out of order. What happens in chapter 26 is supposed to happen before uh, Isaac and Rebekah have children. Jacob and Esau, which is recorded in chapter 25. And so, technically, what's going on in chapter 26 should have happened in 25, and what's in chapter 25 should happen in 26. And scholars call this chronological displacement because it means the story is out of order for a purpose. That is, it's not an accident that as this was being written down, he said, oops, oh, nobody will care. It's out of order. No, it's for a purpose. He has a reason for us. And I want us to look at that purpose in three big ideas. One is that this text shows us what we fear often shapes how we live. What we fear shapes how we live. Secondly, it shows us how God remains faithful despite our fears. And then thirdly, how the gospel speaks to both our fears and His faithfulness. So, our fears, His faithfulness, the gospel. So, the first thing I want us to note is what we fear often shapes how we live It's something that I have seen and something that I have experienced in my own life, and that is that suffering tends to expose our fears. Whatever we're afraid of, when it's under pressure and under specific pressure of hurting, it comes to the surface and comes out in our behaviors. There's a famine in the land. That's the suffering that Isaac and Rebecca are experiencing at this moment. That is, not having enough food. Isaac's status is he's not a citizen of the land in which he's living. He is a—the Bible word is sojourner, but we would say today he's an immigrant. She's a resident alien, someone who in the ancient world had no rights in the land. Everybody else— expected to get food. They could not expect that. And so, their natural tendency is, let's get out of here. But God said, stay there. When men came up to Him and asked Him, who's this woman with you? We see that He says, she is my sister. Now, I told you that this is a recount or a similar experience to his father's sin when he was under pressure, and he said about his wife uh, that she was his sister, and he did it twice. Now, you can imagine that the stories about Abraham were around, and Isaac knew this story because it happened twice. Twice. Abraham told the people of the place that asked, who's this woman with you? She's my sister to save his skin. And so Isaac, huh, if I'm ever in this situation, maybe I'll do the same thing and exactly what he does himself. So why did he tell the lie? That's really the question. There's no question what he did. The question is why? Well, our text actually tells us. Verse 7, it says, because he was afraid. He was afraid. Imagine the impact that had on Rebecca. We don't really have to wonder because the very next chapter in 27, Rebecca is going to lie on behalf of her favorite son, uh, Jacob, uh, to Isaac. And so the very thing she saw her husband do to save his skin, she does to benefit her child, her favorite child. She has twins, remember, Esau and Jacob, but she loved Jacob more than she did Esau, and so she told a lie, and then she got Jacob to tell a lie, to the point where, where Jacob goes and steals his brother's birthright because he was first. As a twin And steals that birthright under a lie And so you have another lie And then when he gets caught That is when Esau finds out that he's lost his birthright He begins chasing Jacob And Jacob's mom Rebekah says Go live with my brother Laban And he goes there And if you know that story There's another set of lies that Laban tells And so he deeply Profoundly wounds His daughter uh, Leah in order to get her married off and out of his home. And she lives in a loveless marriage. Anyway, you can read about that one on your own. But what I'm trying to show you is that there is a cycle here of lies and broken relationships and ruined lives. Why? All because, all because Isaac is afraid. We should never underestimate the power of fear in our lives, corporately or individually. What are we afraid of? People often tell me the Bible seems so distant and uh, unrelatable. Maybe you've heard that it's an ancient text from an ancient culture, and so what does it say to me? I have found the Bible very honest about the human condition, especially about our fears. The Bible doesn't tell us, don't be afraid once. In fact, it is the most frequent command in all the Bible, is do not fear. He's not—the Bible's not saying that because we are to never fear. It's saying that because we fear too much, and that there's a danger to fearing too much that it ends up shaping how we live, and live apart from God. And so, we, we ask the question, what are our fears? What are we afraid of? When I was uh, young, uh, my mother had remarried, and he was uh, an incredibly abusive uh, stepfather, uh, physically, uh, emotionally, and to my sisters, uh, sexually. And he lived in the home for a long time. And he would come home about—and I knew this because we we clocked it, because it was tumultuous whenever he came home. Uh, He had never had children. My mom—there are uh, five of us, brothers and sisters, and so it was just overwhelming whenever he came home. And so, uh, we would hide. And my favorite hiding place in the house uh, was in my closet with the lights out. And that's where I stayed until he went to bed. Now, my father, one of the last things he ever did was bought the 19—I think it's uh, 1974—world book encyclopedias. I don't have them anymore. But I I sat in my closet and I read all of the editions, 26 of them, of the world book of encyclopedias in the closet, because I had time. But one of the things that I have noticed as I have grown up, I'm a little older now, is that some of the, the strategies that I use to save myself are strategies that I use in relationships with people. That is, when I was really young, uh, one of uh, my strategies was to uh, stay away. Whatever the, the conflict was, I would stay away. Well what does that do when you become an adult is that you run from conflict, except when there's a bully present. You, you ever heard that uh, old war, uh, cold war, mutually assured destruction? Well there's another phrase that goes with that, and, and that is disproportionate response. And so, I have a disproportionate response to bullies. That is, if they bully and I see that, that they're bullying somebody, um, I take it back. You know, I make them pay. Those are responses as a result of how I dealt with what was going on in that home. What are you afraid of? What I was afraid of— was His wrath, and it shaped how I live. How about you? What are you afraid of? What are the things that shape you? Those things that you feel that you may lose or fear that someone or something might keep you from getting what you want. What we fear most is often how our lives are shaped— there are secular versions of that. and You can hear it in the campaigns as we move into that sphere of influence, again, of an election cycle. Liberals will take our guns and our money. And conservatives won't let us be ourselves. Conservatives, they want to take away the rights of women and minorities. Those are the mantras. What we fear shapes how we live, and quite frankly, how we see other people. But there's a religious version, too, in that it's often called a slippery slope. That is, we don't want to go there, and so if we see any signs of it, that's a slippery slope that always takes us there. And so, that fear that we're going to go where we don't want to go and be what we don't want to be ends up causing us to respond disproportionately to the action that is actually being taken or even what is being said. There are corporate versions of that. We need to protect our children. You see this in, in, in Texas. We, we're hearing the debate. How do we protect them? And you see a, a, a division between let's take our, our guns away on one side and, and then there's mental illness on the other. And then there's the group that would say it's not guns at all. I'm just saying, what we fear shapes how we live and how we see the world. What do we do when we're afraid? Well, we protect. We project. We run, and we attack. How far would you be willing to go?
0: At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q and R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq@redeemer.com or. Join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube.
2: See how relevant this text is? It's not just an ancient text about an ancient culture, but it is as if it was written for us today because it is. Not only does this text show us how what we fear shapes how we live, but secondly, it shows us that God remains faithful despite our fears. This is the good news, that even though we have colossally and magnificently failed in our faithfulness, God has not. In verses 3 and 4, he restates the promise God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. And here in chapter 26, he restates it. He says, I want you to stay in the land because I'm going to give you this land. And he says, I'm going to be with you. That's where that beautiful thing that you can trace from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation that God's promise is that I'm going to be with you. Or sometimes he will reverse it, you're going to be with me. But he also promises that not only will I give you this land, but I'm going to give this land to your descendants and I'm going to bless them, and your descendants are going to bless the nations. Same promise, restated again, even in the midst of this lie, in the midst of this colossal failure. I used to think that parents raised their children until I had children. And then I realized, the truth is, children have a front row seat to watch their parents grow up. That is, really, we're not finished growing up yet. And so, our children are able to watch us grow up as we seek to raise them. Well, that's exactly what Isaac did with Abraham— Isaac watched his father grow up even though he was already in his 90s when he was born. But in the sense of how God dealt with him and and the promise that that Abraham, who was childless, would have a child, and that child is going to be a blessing to the nations. And here comes Isaac, exhibit A, of the proof of God's faithfulness. And even when Isaac is asked uh, to sacrifice his own son, and when he's willing to do that, God stops and says, I'll provide a substitute. Isaac is exhibit A— of God's faithfulness, even in the midst of Abraham's unfaithfulness. What a beautiful picture. That's why we get to watch that happen. Then why do we fail so spectacularly in the face of God's faithfulness? The short answer we're afraid, we fear. Fear robs us of our sanity. Abimelech asks a great question. Why did you say she was your sister in verse 9? In Isaac's response, I want you to note how many first-person pronouns are here, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Isaac is only thinking of himself at her expense. Fear reduces our field of vision to where we can only see ourselves and that which threatens us. And these fears lead us to try to assist God to get what we believe we ought to have. We come up with strategies that God needs a little help from us. And yet, despite our fears and despite our spectacular failures, God remains faithful to His promise. Despite Abraham's own failure in the past, despite Isaac's colossal failure here in the only chapter that is recorded about him, and despite my failures and your failures, even our most colossal, spectacular failures, God is faithful to his promise. Why? Why would God remain faithful? The answer is the gospel. The gospel speaks to both our fears and God's faithfulness. So, why would God remain? I want to take these in reversed orders. This is kind of that third point. Show us how the gospel uh, speaks to both our fears and to, uh, to His faithfulness. But I want to reverse those because one builds off the other. Why would God remain faithful to His promise in the face of our, salvation, our failures? We have given Him every reason to throw in the towel on humanity. Why doesn't He? Let's be honest. If it was us— we would. I I don't care how uh, uh, gracious you are with this much failure, this level of failure, we would all throw in the towel. If a friend or a spouse was this unfaithful to us, if they showed us this much lack of trust, we would have said, okay, if you don't want me, If you won't trust me, I am free from this relationship and my commitment to you. It happens all the time. I will just ghost you as if you never existed. So why would God remain faithful? The answer is in verse uh, 4. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. It's hard to see in the English. They try the best they can, but without knowing a little bit of the actual words that are there, we would miss what he's saying is the reason God remains faithful. The first thing I want you to notice, he says, I will make your descendants. We know that's plural in the original language in the way that the translators decided to, instead of saying descendant, said descendants. Plural. The problem isn't with that one, it's with the offspring. Because offspring in English is like deer. One deer or many deers, we still say deer. We don't say deers. Well... Same thing with offspring, when you want to refer to one and you refer to many, you still use the same word offspring, but not so in the original language. In the original language, they have a different word or different ending to a singular as it does to a plural. And so, what we have here is a singular. He's talking about a specific identified person, not a group of people. How do we know that? One of the great... Uh, principles of understanding the Bible is you let other Scripture interpret a less clear Scripture. And so, there is another Scripture, and that is in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is the Christ. You see, Moses is not talking about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Israel. He's talking about a specific person yet to come, the Christ, the Messiah. That's who the whole world, all the peoples will be blessed by what he does when he's here. But what do you say about verse 5? Doesn't verse 5 say, because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him? But we already know Abraham has his own colossal failures. It's not like uh, all of a sudden, uh, Jacob had—I mean, uh, Abraham had a son, Isaac, and Isaac was the bad guy and didn't learn it from somewhere. That's the whole idea behind generational sin. We, we learn sin. We do sin because of a fallenness, but also we do it because we do what we see. It is through Jesus, God will bless all the peoples of the earth— He's already showed that with Abraham in his colossal failures. Abraham received a righteousness, a right standing before God because of someone else's righteousness. It was—the word in the Bible is it was credited to him as if he had done it himself. That's why when Martin Luther read that verse in Romans where it says that the righteous live by faith, he became a believer after being in the church almost his whole life. He realized that in order to be a follower of Jesus, it is that we receive by faith what Jesus has done for us. And we live by that, not by our works, but by his finished work that's been credited as if we had done it ourselves. God is faithful to his promises, and God continues to be faithful to his promises, not because we have done anything, not because we've been faithful but because Jesus Christ has been faithful on our behalf, as if we had done it ourselves. And remember this, our faithfulness does matter. See, one mistake I think people do and when they hear the gospel, that it's not about what you do, it's about what Christ does. We think what we do doesn't matter, but it does matter. It's not definitive. It's not determinative. It's not what makes something happen. It's the result of what something has happened. That is, my behavior in light of what has been done for me shapes my life, how I live it, not the other way around. Even when our lives seem like deja vu all over again, a bad sequel to our parents— God will remain faithful to His promises, not because we are faithful in the midst of suffering or that we handle uh, suffering because uh, uh, of the way in which we approach it, but in the midst of everything, the Son has been faithful for us. His perfect record is our perfect record by faith how does the gospel speak to our fears? If that's, if that's true, what about my fear? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? You ever thought about that question? For some, it would be a loss of reputation. For some, it'd be a loss of income, a loss of your retirement because Wall Street's struggling right now. It could be lots of those things. But quite frankly, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you because you can start over. The worst thing that can happen to you is you die. I know we have convinced this generation that death is just part of life. It's the circle of life, Lion King won out over the Bible, it seems. But that's not true. The worst thing that can happen to you is to die unless you die in Christ. Then the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you. So, if the worst thing that can happen to you is the best thing that can happen to you, what do we do with the things that we are afraid of? Where do you go? Where do I go? Who can go in this room into the most powerful ruler in the world at any time, whenever they want? When I was young, I grew up uh, with... uh, um, John John, which is John F. Kennedy's son, just that whole idea of that experience of living. We have two incredible photos of John John when he's a kid at the White House. One, tragically, after John F. Kennedy is assassinated, him on the uh, steps saluting as the casket goes by. The other one—and it doesn't matter how old you are, you've seen these pictures And the other one is him playing in his daddy's office under his desk. Who can go into the most powerful person in the world's office at their own beck and call? Only the most powerful person's child. God didn't just save us. He made us His children. And then He invites us to come in with our fears. You see, if one mistake is to deny our fears and act like they're not real, and the other mistake is to give in to our fears and let them shape our lives, the third option is to take our fears into the presence of the only being that has been faithful to you and to me forever. He welcomes us to come in and unload them. And sometimes that's with silence, because what is going on is so horrific, the only response we can give is silence. We're not comfortable with silence, quite frankly. But I don't know how else you can respond uh, to those children uh, who went to school with their mothers and daddies, begging them off, only to find out they're never coming home. Silence is the only response. And yet we fill it with some of the most awful things that we can say that is not really bringing comfort to anyone. Reminds me of Job's friends. They would have been better off just sitting there. But he wants us to come in, whether it's in silence or you're screaming. And sometimes the events of our lives, the overwhelming response that we can have is to shout. Do you know how often the scriptures talk about shouting? More than it does about silence. And shouting in His presence. This isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And the people who know that are those who know that He made this good. He made this good, and because of the cycle of lies and the cycle of fear that we've had, we've ruined this place. But if that's all there was to the story, there would be no hope. But there's one more chapter, isn't there? That Christ has come to make all things new. To make good again, which we have soiled. Whether it's in Texas or here. Only His children can erupt the King. Come in and shout or sit in silence and give Him your fears, because He is faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank You. I thank You that You have been so patient with us. As you see us turn from you and try to come up with our best strategies to fix what we see, the brokenness, the cycles that we have not just witnessed but experienced, and you want us to come, come before you and shout from the rooftops that this isn't right, would you please do something now? Would you bring some comfort to parents and children, brothers and sisters and strangers who are hurting today because they can't understand and fathom what happened? But some of us in this room, the best we can do is to sit in silence. Even as the lament was read and prayed this morning, all we could do is agree in our silence. Before you, we know that you can handle our silence and our shouting. Because that's what happened at the cross. And you turned that which was evil into the ultimate plan of redemption for us. Help us come into your presence because you beg us to come that you might minister to our fears and so that we may not be shaped by them in how we live. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit LincolnSquare.Redeemer.com.